This is Tempest Tossed, Conversations on Migration and Mobility, and I'm Alex Alenikov. We are moved by the stories of children. The picture of Aylin Kurdi, a four-year-old refugee of the Syrian war, whose body washed up on a shore in Turkey, sparked reactions in Europe for a kinder refugee policy, at least for a time. The picture of a young girl at the southwest border taken from her parents' arms by a border patrol agent became a symbol of the cruelty of the Trump administration's child separation policy. And now we have the tragic death of seven-year-old Jacqueline Call. We don't have all the facts yet, but it seems to me that, as we lawyers like to say, the facts speak for themselves. Asked by a reporter whether the administration is taking responsibility for the girl's death, White House spokesman Hogan Gidley said, does the administration take responsibility for a parent taking a child on a trek through Mexico to get to this country? No. But let's be clear. Jacqueline died while she was in the custody of the U.S. Border Patrol. Whatever the situation that led to her being arrested by the Border Patrol, surely the Border Patrol has the resources to prevent the death of a seven-year-old who's in their custody. Now, the administration and its opponents have spun Jacqueline's death differently. The administration is clear about its position. If you stop unauthorized migration, you won't have these deaths. Here's Stephen Miller, point man for the Trump administration, speaking recently on CBS's Face the Nation. One of the great tragedies that is going on in our country today is the loopholes in our immigration laws and the deficiencies in our immigration laws and left-wing activist judicial rulings that incentivize the most vulnerable populations to come to our country. Pro-immigration advocates see it differently. It's illegal, they say, to prevent people from applying for asylum. So the answer is not to send troops, but rather judges to the border, to adopt humane policies towards kids, and most importantly, to stop the dehumanizing rhetoric against immigrants. This is Beto O'Rourke in a film clip that was shown recently on MSNBC's Morning Joe. You do not travel 2,000 miles with your seven-year-old child for kicks. Um, uh, to take advantage of another country. You do it because you're desperate. What, what would cause you to, to take your child and make that journey unless it was the only thing you could do to save your child's life? So our responsibility, once those parents arrive here with their children, <laughs> is to make sure that those kids are okay and that they fully survive that journey and that we follow our own asylum laws and, and the best traditions and promise of, of this country. President Trump tried to make the midterms all about the caravan. That effort failed, or maybe I should say it backfired. A blue tide came in and the Democrats added 40 seats and exit polls showed widespread opposition to Trump's border policies. But Trump hasn't changed his course. In fact, in the lingo of the day, he's doubled down, now threatening to shut down the government over funding for the wall, a wall that most Americans do not support and which doesn't even appear to have the support from Republicans in Congress. The Central American migrants and the administration's response to them have become emblematic of the many current challenges and failures that the United States faces at the Southwest border. And that's what I wanna focus on today. I wanna to suggest some avenues for reform that may help us out of the current stalemate at the border. 
which is both a human stalemate with hundreds of people waiting in dire conditions to apply for asylum and a policy stalemate. To get there, I, I need to spend some time talking about the history and the facts. And bear with me for a few minutes because most of what we hear about the border and undocumented migration is simply not accurate. I want to see if I can help set the record straight. So let's begin. In the last century, the, the 20th century, large numbers of Mexican workers came to the United States to plow the fields and pick the crops in the American West. They came and they worked seasonally. And by that, I mean, they usually went home at the end of the harvest. They didn't come here to settle. Their homes, their families were in Mexico. In the 1920s, Congress for the first time established quotas for immigrants. It was done to stop the huge flow of Jews, Italians, Southern and Eastern Europeans that had come in over the previous several decades. But these limits didn't apply to the Western Hemisphere. They didn't apply to Mexican workers. During the Great Depression, fewer Mexicans came. There were, after all, far fewer jobs to be had in the United States. But in the middle of World War II, 1942, the U.S. and Mexico made an agreement to allow temporary Mexican workers to come to the U.S. And this was called the Bracero Program. The name comes from the Spanish word for arm, brazo. The Bracero Program lasted for 20 years, and it brought several million Mexican workers to this country. The program ended because there were concerns about abuse and exploitation, but the need for Mexican workers did not end. They remained crucial to Western agriculture. So Mexican workers continued to come, and what had been a flow of legal workers now became a flow of undocumented workers. As the undocumented migration continued, the Border Patrol swung into action, and by the 1980s, the Border Patrol was making more than one million arrests at the southwest border. These were overwhelmingly Mexican men, Mexican men coming to work in the agricultural industry. And they, are, they were people that in earlier years would have come as seasonal workers, but now were coming without authorization. By the mid-1980s, there were about three million undocumented migrants in the United States. And to fix what was called a broken immigration system, then Congress adopted a law, the Immigration Reform and Control Act, or IRCA. The law is also known as the Simpson-Mazzoli legislation, after Republican Senator Alan Simpson, who you may have recently seen speaking at George H.W. Bush's funeral, uh, and Democratic representative from Kentucky, Ron Mazzoli. This law was going to end the problem of undocumented migration. And it was going to do this by increasing the Border Patrol, which it called for, and a new law that imposed employer sanctions, that is, fines and penalties on employers who hired undocumented migrants. You probably know about this law uh, because when you get a job, you fill out a federal form that shows you're authorized to work in the United States. You show a passport, a social security card, a driver's license. That comes from this law. Now, the third leg of IRCA, of the Simpson-Mazzoli law, the third leg of the stool was a legalization program for undocumented migrants who'd been in the United States for a long number of years or whom had worked in agriculture. About 2.7 million undocumented immigrants gained legal status under IRCA. 
Opponents called it an amnesty, but I see it as a major piece of civil rights legislation. It gave legal status to workers whom we had all but invited into the United States and who were filling jobs, raising families, joining churches, participating in neighborhood life in their home communities. So this was the idea of, this, of the Simpson-Mazzoli law here. It was going to stop illegal immigration at the border, through the Border Patrol. If you got in somehow, you weren't going to be able to find a job because of employer sanctions. And for the long-term undocumented population, they would be legalized, given a status, and put on the track to citizenship. For the next three decades, the Border Patrol continued to grow. Bill Clinton made enforcing the Southwest border a top priority. Now, full disclosure here, I worked at the Immigration and Naturalization Service during that time as general counsel, then as executive associate commissioner for programs. The INS uh, built new detention facilities and barriers and technology were deployed at the border to stop the flow of undocumented migration. But this border buildup produced an odd and unanticipated consequence. The growth of the Border Patrol was matched by the growth of the undocumented population in the United States. How could this happen? Well, the story is this. Because it became harder to enter the United States, those who did enter tended to stay, and then family members came to join them and they stayed too. So what had once been this circular migration of seasonal workers became an immigration that produced settlement in the United States of workers and their families. Essentially, this dramatic buildup at the border didn't keep undocumented migrants out so much as it locked undocumented workers in. So the big increase in the Border Patrol, there are now 16,000 Border Patrol agents, also produced a big increase in the undocumented population. As I said, there were about 3 million in 1986 when legalization occurred. And with legalization, the, the numbers went down for a short time, but then they started to climb again. And they reached about 11 million, 11 million undocumented workers in the United States a decade ago and staying around that number ever since. Not exactly what Senator Simpson and Representative Mazzoli hoped for or promised the American people. Oh, and I should add here that employer sanctions never became much of a deterrent to illegal entry. Migrants were easily able to obtain fraudulent driver's licenses and social security cards, and employers readily adopted them. So even apparently Donald Trump, uh, a recent story in the New York Times shows that many of the domestic workers at the Trump Bedminster Resort in New Jersey were illegal, and the management of the resort knew it. But I digress. The border buildup had another consequence. Apprehensions at the U.S. border dropped dramatically. From a high of 1.6 million arrests in 2000 to just over 300,000 in 2017. That's a drop of more than 80%, a remarkable dramatic decrease. Let me repeat it so it sinks in. In 2000, the Border Patrol made 1.6 million arrests at the southwest border. Less than two decades later, that number had declined to 303,000. There were a number of factors for the decline in, in improving Mexican economy, the downturn in the U.S. economy and the Great Recession starting in 2008, a lower birth rate in Mexico, and of course, the increase in the Border Patrol. During Barack Obama's time in office, 
here's what he was looking at at the southwest border. It was a border that was getting under control as these apprehension numbers went down, but there were a large number of undocumented migrants living in the United States. And so the policy he proposed was another legalization for the long-term undocumented population, similar to the 1986 laws. But he was unable to convince Congress. Again, opponents labeled it an amnesty, an impermissible reward for those who broke the law, for queue jumpers, and the law was not adopted. But then there was a new source of migrants who began to arrive at the southwest border. These were migrants from the so-called Northern Triangle countries of Central America, Honduras, El Salvador, and Guatemala. On a per capita basis, these are among the most dangerous countries in the world. Criminal gangs, narco-traffickers, poor economy, corrupt and weak governments. Not every Central American trying to get to the United States was a refugee, as strictly defined by the law. But many face serious risks to their well-being at home. The Obama administration saw the arrival of about 65,000 unaccompanied minors at the southwest border. And another 60,000 family units came. Parents and kids came together to the border. Now, when about 100,000 Cubans came to the United States during the Carter administration, Jimmy Carter said that he would welcome the Cubans with open arms and open hearts. This was not the Obama position. The Obama wanted to show toughness, not because the numbers were overwhelming. They weren't or because the flow posed a threat to U.S. sovereignty and security, it plainly didn't. But because he thought that he could never get Congress to adopt his broader immigration reform proposal, the legalization proposal, if he couldn't show that the Southwest border was under control. So and until the courts ordered him to stop, he initiated family detention. Now, this wasn't the separation of parents and kids that Trump ordered, but it was a decision to detain families that under earlier policies would have been released. And his attorney general, Eric Holder, adopted a very harsh tone, warning migrants not to come, that they wouldn't get in. If they did get in, their cases for removal would be processed first. And to some degree, Donald Trump is correct to say that a number of the policies he is pursuing at the southwest border began with the Obama administration. But what's important to notice here is that the Southwest border situation of earlier decades is not the story today. I think we tend to think that the story is the same, that the border's out of control. It's largely a Mexican flow coming into the country. But as I say, that's not the case today. The Mexican flow has largely ceased. The number of Mexicans arrested at the border is down 90% since highs in the 1980s and early 1990s. And, and this may strike you as the hardest fact to believe of all. For the past several years, more Mexicans have left the United States than have entered the United States. In other words, we have a net outmigration of Mexicans from the U.S., then came Donald Trump. At a time when immigration was not high on any politician's agenda, when the American people seemed to be satisfied enough that illegal immigration was not a major problem for the U.S., Trump made border enforcement a central element of his campaign from the start. And many of the smart folks in politics think it helped him win the presidency. 
Trump brought into the White House Stephen Miller, who we heard from before, an immigration hardliner. And the first thing they did, really one of the first official acts of the new presidency, was to announce a ban on Muslims entering the United States, as Trump had promised during the campaign. Then Trump and his gang looked south. He was going to build his wall, and he demanded Congress to fund it. What happened to the promise that Mexico would pay for it? And he continued his tough guy talk. At first, the numbers at the border looked pretty good for Trump. The number of arrests went down, but then apprehensions began to rise. Still way below what they'd been in the 1990s, but above what Obama saw in his last years in office. Trump demanded action from the Department of Homeland Security and his attorney general, then Jeff Sessions. The problem for Trump was that he'd been thinking about the border in the way it had been in the 1980s. Remember the opening words of his campaign about Mexico sending bad people to the United States? Well, we've looked at the numbers. The surge in people coming across the border were not Mexicans. Trump, like Obama, was faced with migrants from the Northern Triangle countries, El Salvador, Guatemala, and Honduras. And unlike Mexicans who were apprehended at the border in earlier years, who simply accepted return to Mexico so they could probably try to re-enter, the non-Mexicans did not accept immediate return to their home countries, and many asked for asylum. The request for asylum put them into a backlogged asylum system in which it will take years to have their cases heard. Meanwhile, they'll be in the United States. So Trump, like Obama, moved to stop this flow. To do this, he needed to prevent, he thought, the migrants from coming in the first place. And if they did come, he wanted to find ways to keep them out of the asylum system. So the administration ramped up the tension, announced they would criminally prosecute illegal entrants. That was something Obama did not do. And would take kids away from parents who were put into the criminal justice system. Again, something Obama didn't do. These were actions that were taken to, to deter the arrival of asylum seekers. But these actions didn't work. People kept coming and the courts wouldn't tolerate the harshest of the measures. They limited the time that kids and families could be detained and they found the separation policy unconstitutional. Then the caravan formed. Now Trump's rhetoric of bad hombres from Mexico, which was never accurate in the first place, was shifted to the caravan. The caravan formed because asylum seekers knew that it would be safer to travel in a group through Mexico and they could avoid the use of smugglers. But Trump saw something far more sinister. He called the caravan an invading force. He said it included bad people, criminals, people from Mideast countries, whatever that means. He didn't object when it was suggested that George Soros, the current boogeyman of the far right, was paying people to march. And he then sent U.S. military troops to the border, as many troops as caravan members, to protect U.S. sovereignty. This is all absolute, reprehensible nonsense. And the American people saw through it. As I mentioned, Trump's obsession with the caravan seems to have cost him in the midterms. But let's talk about the caravan for a moment. The Central Americans were once a tiny portion of the people apprehended at the southwest border. They now constitute about 50%. Why are they coming? Why have they replaced the Mexican flow? 
The new migrants seeking entrance are doing so for a mix of reasons, but one thing is clear. They are leaving countries with high levels of violence and gang activity, where economic opportunities pale when compared to what appears to be available in the booming U.S. economy. I guess you could say migrants are looking to the U.S. for reasons that migrants have looked to the U.S. for more than three centuries, for a better life for themselves and their children. Now, as I said, many of the Central Americans are seeking asylum in the United States, and many, according to the United Nations High Commissioner for Refugees, have valid claims for international protection. That means they would face a well-founded fear of harm in their home country. That's the standard, well-founded fear of harm in their home country, either because it would be inflicted by their home government or because their home state will not or cannot prevent others from inflicting that harm. Now, this is not to say that all migrants will qualify for asylum. If you're coming simply for economic opportunity, you're not likely to meet the definition. But many will. But to go after this group of people who might qualify under existing asylum law, Jeff Sessions, before he left office, made things much harder for many people facing real harm at home. As we detailed in a recent tempest-tossed episode, Sessions issued a ruling that makes it extremely difficult for victims of domestic violence, victims who the state will not protect from their abusers, to receive asylum in the United States. And he said the same difficulty would face claims raised by people who face violence at the hands of gangs. And in a parting shot... After the election, but just before he was fired by the president, Sessions and the administration went further. If the flow of migrants to the border couldn't be stopped, then it was necessary to ensure that they could not get asylum if they entered illegally. If they needed protection, it was thought, let them stay in Mexico. To accomplish this, Trump issued a presidential proclamation, and the attorney general, and the Department of Homeland Security issued regulations that implemented the proclamation that said that any person who enters the United States at any place other than an official border crossing point is not eligible for asylum, cannot receive asylum. Now, these regulations are hard to square with a federal statute that says a person may apply for asylum anywhere in the United States. And a federal court has already issued a preliminary ruling that the Trump order violates the statute. The government, not surprisingly, will appeal. Trump, for his part, attacked the judge, the lower court judge, in a tweet calling him an Obama judge. And that drew an unprecedented rebuke from Chief Justice Roberts, who said that, quote, there are not Obama judges or Trump judges. What we have, the Chief Justice stated, is an extraordinary group of dedicated judges doing their level best to do equal right to those appearing before them. Now, there is some logic to the recent administration moves. A rational system might ask asylum seekers to come to official entry points and ask for asylum there rather than seeking dangerous illegal entry. And conceivably, that could make sense if U.S. officials permitted them to request asylum at the border and if they could be housed and fed and provided safety while waiting in line for a short period of time. But this isn't what happened. 
As Kate Jastrom in an earlier episode of this podcast made clear, there are no formal arrangements, no services, no housing to take care of asylum seekers in Mexico just outside the U.S. entry points. And U.S. officials are permitting only a small number of persons at a time to come forward to request asylum. They call this metering. So this system has led to lengthy waits of weeks or months at the border and is very likely to provide greater incentives for illegal entry into the United States, where you can immediately be uh, present your uh, claim to a border patrol agent if you're apprehended inside the United States. The current situation at the border is plainly unacceptable, and it's a bit of a bait and switch from the administration. The administration said, don't bother coming illegally. You won't be able to get asylum. Go to a border port of entry. But if you get to a border of a port of entry, you're not going to be able to have your case heard for months in any event. And so people are waiting in these dangerous situations. That then incentivizes the kind of illegal entry that leads to the death of young children. Well, what should be done? How should the United States put together a combination of policies that appropriately and humanely responds to the facts before us. First, we need to take a deep breath and we need to recognize there is no crisis at the border. Arrests at the border continue at historically low numbers. There's no need for a presidential proclamation or for troops to be sent to the border. There is no invasion of the country. Dangerous criminals and terrorists are not hiding among the families and asylum seekers coming from Central America. Instead, I would propose a four- Prong approach. The first element will be to focus on the Northern Triangle countries, the countries where the migrants are coming from. The U.S. sends only small amounts of aid to these countries, and Trump has threatened to cut off all aid if the leaders of those countries don't stop their citizens from coming to the U.S. Now, that's precisely the wrong thing to do. First of all, it violates international law. States can't prohibit the departure of their citizens. But second, the withdrawal of aid would only make the reasons for leaving that much stronger. Second, asylum systems in Central America and Mexico need to be strengthened so that asylum seekers won't have to walk several thousand miles to the U.S. border to find safety. The United Nations High Commissioner's Office for Refugees could work with countries on this. Cases could be heard in the region and people recognized as refugees could be shared out on a proportional basis with countries in the hemisphere, including the United States. There need be no great burden on any one country. A third element would be, and this I take from Roberto Soros' suggestion on an earlier episode of Tempest Tossed, would be for the United States to create an immigrant process for the Northern Triangle countries that would give some number of visas, maybe 50,000 a year, uh, based on family or work or humanitarian reasons uh, to people from Guatemala, El Salvador, and Honduras. The United States has done this in other contexts for entries from Cuba and from Vietnam as part of comprehensive plans to manage migration flows. If if people know they have a shot at coming to the United States legally with a visa directly from their home country, it's much less likely that caravans will form and they will attempt to move through Mexico to the U.S. border. 
And fourth, the U.S. asylum system needs to be reformed. As many have suggested, the government should be sending asylum judges, not troops, to the border. If the previous three suggestions are adopted, then the numbers should be much smaller, and the U.S. clearly has the capacity to handle them. If asylum seekers are asked to remain in Mexico, that can only be acceptable if their safety is guaranteed, if they're provided food and shelter, and if their cases are heard in a reasonable period of time, a matter of days or a week or so, not months or years. This would require U.S. funding and an agreement with the Mexican government to carry this out. I guess what I'm saying here is that what is out of control is not the border, but rather the administration's response to it. Smart and sensible policies can be developed and they can be put in place in a way that would deal with the situation in a thoughtful and a comprehensive way. I've been talking about the border as if it were a physical object. Now, if you close your eyes and think about the border, you might see a desert scene, the line separating U.S. and Mexico. You, you might see a passport inspection booth at an international airport. But there are other kinds of borders, not just physical ones, like the line between citizens and immigrants, between legal immigrants and undocumented migrants, between us, whoever the us is, and others. I think that the rhetoric of the Trump administration has used the physical border, the idea of the wall, to make these conceptual lines seem harder, more real. You can almost reach out and touch them. Words have constructed walls with xenophobia, the bricks, and hatred, the mortar. I think it works like this. It's how we think about migrants more than their actions that seem to produce policy. Once it is believed against all evidence that immigrants are coming to the U.S. to get welfare benefits, then new rules spring into being that keep less affluent migrants from coming to the U.S. to live with their close family members. And when it's claimed that terrorists are using the refugee resettlement program to smuggle themselves into the United States, again, a suggestion for which there is zero evidence, then the number of refugees brought to the United States can be cut by more than 50%, despite the highest global number of displaced persons around the world ever recorded. If the caravan is called an invasion, then the idea of separating children from their parents and using tear gas against asylum seekers at the border become acceptable to policymakers in this administration. And the death of a seven-year-old in Border Patrol custody can be blamed on her father. For me, for this podcast, the task for the year ahead is to try to find ways to overcome the hateful rhetoric of this administration and the harmful policies that that rhetoric supports and to find ways to restore to the debate over immigration traditional American values of decency, fairness, and justice. You have been listening to Tempest Tossed, a production of the Zolberg Institute on Migration and Mobility at the New School. Technical assistance is provided by Sahil Ansari at Dodge 112. Our themes were composed by Eli Alenikov. 
We would welcome your comments and suggestions for future episodes. You can reach us at tossedtempest at gmail.com. That is tossedtempest, all one word, at gmail.com.